Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jump Cree is a small rural townland which sits just north of Portadown. Normally, you'd never have heard of it, but most of us have. The fourth time in as many years, fury over the Drum Cree Parade has led to serious street trouble. This week in July has become Northern Ireland's annual disaster. It's a word, place and time burned into our minds. Drum Cree was the site of a massive standoff from the mid-1990s to 2001 or in some people's point of view, to this very day. The Orange Order wanted to march home from a church service in Drumcree, back into Portadown. They wanted to walk down their traditional route, the Garvahi Road. People on the Garvahi Road are not sufficiently tolerant to accept a religiously based organisation going home with simply one Union Jack. If they cannot tolerate that, then we've no peace process worth talking about. The nationalists living on the Garvahi Road opposed what they saw as a sectarian march trampling all over them, facilitated by state force. The world has seen what happened on the Garvahi Road, and we have to keep the focus of it on what the British government, what the RUC and the Orange Order have done. The Orange men felt it was their cultural right to walk the Queen's Highway and a question of religious liberty. The scene was set for a clash involving nationalist residents, loyalist protesters and the security forces over rights, identity and freedoms. And it brought Northern Ireland to the edge. Because only divine intervention can keep this from an explosion that no one will stop. And there's no man who will be able to stop the former BBC journalist Mervyn Jess has written a book on the Orange Order and has reported extensively on the Drum Creek crisis. He joins me in the studio. Mervyn, you're very welcome to the Bell Tale. I know it's a very wide question, but there are people listening. Maybe they're overseas or maybe they're amongst my colleagues here in the Belfast Telegraph who are under, say, 30 years of age or even 35 years of age and they've heard the term, the place name Drum Cree but really that's as far as it goes What was it all about? What was it? Well Drum Cree first and foremost although it has passed into you know, the common parlance here as a, a name which is usually followed by the word dispute uh, first and foremost is a Church of Ireland church 
perched on top of a little hill on the outskirts of Portadown in rolling rural countryside. Very picturesque in its own right. And it's a church where the Sunday before the 12th of July every year, for over 100 years actually, the local Portadown District Lodge would go along to, would parade to, have a Sunday service for the 12th of July and then parade back from to their Orange Hall uh, in Carlton Street in the centre of Portadown. And that that went on for many, many years uh, without any issue. But of course, over those years, the whole uh, topography and obviously size of Portadown changed and there were more housings uh, built in certain areas. And on one of the areas was the Gavahi Road, which was the, the, the main route back into Portadown from Drum Creek Church, which was actually part of the uh, original parade. And that housing estate that was built there, hundreds of houses, was a mainly and predominantly Catholic stroke nationalist housing area. So obviously this Orange Parade was going through that area to get back into the centre of Portadown. This is the heart of nationalist Portadown. And either side of this wide road, there are six housing estates. They're all 100% Catholic. There are new estates have been built in the last two years and right beside us, uh, there's a new estate being constructed. It's unfortunate that this town is segregated. I would prefer if it wasn't. Everybody knows that this is, for the time being, the nationalist quarter. There were also problems with the route out originally, which was uh, first and foremost along Open Street. Again, it became uh, much more built up and obviously it was nationalist as well. And that became a, an issue in the 80s when they had uh, the dispute around the tunnel, as it was called, which was a little underpass which went underneath the main Belfast to Dublin railway line, just very close actually to the centre of Portadown. And that was a flashpoint for, for a while as well. Then the route changed from there and uh, was moved uh, out towards the more Protestant area of Portadown, went along uh, the Corcoran Road. And that took it out further away, if you like, from the centre of Portadown. But eventually they got out to Grumpy Church. So... There was a lot of happening even before the Drum Creek dispute as we know it and came to know it began. Again, it was a church service. It was uh, one of those things that uh, Orange men across Northern Ireland would attend usually before the 12th of July uh, in villages and towns and cities. Uh, and it, uh, it, it passed off reasonably without much incident for many, many years. I suppose so far, if you knew nothing about this dispute, uh, and perhaps someone listening in another jurisdiction or another country might say, how did this turn into a dispute, a crisis? Well, how does anything turn into a crisis? Situations change. The situation here became much more politicised. Remember, this was happening, uh, this is before the Good Friday Agreement, it's before the ceasefires. So things were still very much alive out there. Um, sectarianism was rife in many areas, um, put it down amongst them. And as people became more politicised, um, they they became uh, probably more de- more defiant in some respects about things happening in their neighbourhood, saying, well, why should we put up with this any longer? So then they would organise, and in particular, uh, they'd organise into residence groups in areas where parades were deemed by themselves to be contentious. And then they would start to um, obviously make moves towards blocking these parades uh, coming through their areas. And to cut a long story short, that eventually, in many respects, because of the number of prayers that were becoming contentious and were having to be dealt with by the police, the RUC as it was at the time, the the Praise Commission had to be brought into uh, existence to deal with this, to remove the 
the onerous, if you like, uh, decision-making process uh, take, it, take it away from the from the policing uh, chiefs because they were there to police, but they're actually been asked to make, in many respects, some would say political decisions because obviously parades, orangism, Protestantism, Catholicism, nationalism was all wrapped up in this. So it, it, it wasn't an easy t- time for anybody. And, um, and those tensions grew uh, over the years. And don't forget, in the wider community, Things were still happening. People were still being murdered. There were still explosions going off. Uh, tensions were, were being heightened uh, by a, a number of things. Politics didn't appear to be working still. So you had a lot going on. And then all of a sudden, the focus fell on this little small country church. Uh, one Sunday, actually, I think uh, the, the first, the very first recollection I have would have been the Sunday in 1995, when out of the blue, uh, and I was uh, in the newsroom at the time, we got a call to say there's some dispute about a parade being blocked uh, at a church outside Portadown at a place called Drum Cree. We'd never heard of it. Very few people had, probably, in those days. So we had to look it up on the map and say, well, where is Drum Cree Church? And then down we went, and we, when we got there, we discovered like several hundred orangemen on a hillside and the police at the bottom of the road and they're being they're sent the police are refusing to let us march home to our our, our uh, church our, our our orange hall because uh, the residents on the road are refusing uh, to, to let us through and they're blocking it. So that was the very that was the very first instance of of any semblance that was an issue here around drum cree, if you like, for the wider public. And the RUC have a choice: you either remove nationalist protesters from the road and all that entails or stop them getting on the road in the first place and all that entails, or you block the orange men and all that entails. So they, they are, to, 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 to look at it the, from their point of view, they are really in the middle there. And of course, this is not the PSNI we're talking about, it's the RUC. So that's an extra element. So I suppose from the orange men's point of view, are you not our kith and kin? And from the nationalist point of view, well, you are oppressors. That seems an impossible situation. I was left with a stark choice. How much life is liable to be lost? And that loss of life was liable to be in the Catholic community. These are the stark choices I was left with yesterday. That was the decision I made. It was an impossible situation, and the various chief constables who had to deal with it were, in, a, in many respects, a, a no-win situation, really. And they also had the Secretary of State's breathing down their necks because they didn't want this happening. And, you know, at the time there were all sorts of talks going on in the background about, you know, let's get a peace process underway here and uh, this, that and the other. But still, this Drum Cree thing just was growing, it seemed, year on, on year. And that's exactly what, what it did. But then again, to some extent, you could look at it and say, well, it was hijacked by the politicians. It didn't become an issue about a local Orange District Lodge having a, a fallout or a disagreement with some local nationalist residents and trying to sort it amongst themselves, it became a much wider thing. Uh, the main political parties, either unionist parties or Sinn Féin, uh, CLP, they, they got involved, uh, rightly or wrongly. Uh, they thought they're probably doing the right thing because they're representing their constituents. But it grew from what was something local and small to something much wider. And it actually it became, in many respects, a, a touchstone for the, uh, for the, the entire society of Northern Ireland at that time as to, well, which way are things going to go here? And, and that's, that's how it played out in the end. I remember it at the time, and I was young at the time, 
But people were saying, this is all going to end in civil war. And I, I know that people in the nationalist side, perhaps outside of Portadown, were saying, well, maybe to avoid, you know, Armageddon, they should just be let down the road. And other people were saying, no, well, if you do that then, like you're just saying, you're, you're declaring yourself as second class. And it came down to that, didn't it, really? You know, this existential who's on top, who's below and around equality. And you could see the passion and you could feel it. But if I could ask you to maybe, what was, you know, and we know the Orange point of view. It was a traditional route. It was the Queen's Highway, which is the famous term that people used. But maybe we could delve deeper into the passion involved in the Orange Order's point of view, because we saw the crowds, we heard the speeches, we saw the anger. Well, as I say, as the as the whole issue around Drumcree grew year on year, it, it became a much wider thing. It, it, at the end of the day, it became basically unionist versus nationalist stroke Republican. It was a case of if we lose this battle, we lose everything in the eyes of many people who supported it. And it became almost, and I think this is, I'm not overstating it by saying, a societal issue because this bled into all parts of life in Northern Ireland. I mean, this impacted on relationships in workplaces between Catholic and Protestant who'd been working together side by side perfectly well in all sorts of areas. And when they were watching what was going on on their TV screens and the evening news bulletins and whatever, that 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 influenced how they saw things. And in some respects, those suppressed feelings of, well, what am I? Am I of a unionist persuasion? Am I of a nationalist Republican persuasion? That surfaced almost for the first time in some in some instances, I think, in, in, in places where it never surfaced before. And that was brought on by, again, what was happening at Drumcree. Because as you rightly said, you had the issue whereby the police were told to remove the protesters who were sitting down on the on the Gavai Road, the nationalist protesters, to remove them from the street so that they could push the parade through. That required, as you can remember from the, the TV pictures, people being effectively beaten off the streets and there was cracked heads and blood running and all the rest of it. Then there was the police getting attacked by the by, by the, the protesters. Then you had the Orangemen coming through and uh, some of them would have uh, done so in a triumphant uh, manner, if you like, um, that 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 obviously didn't go down well. On the other side, when the police said no, the parade is not going through. They're not putting it down through there again because of the way things went when we tried to move the protesters the last time. You saw what happened at the, at the field at Drumcree. It became what what was known as the standoff. And in fact, effectively, what became uh, what was a few hundred orange men to begin with became thousands uh, as the years rolled on because other orange men from right across Northern Ireland came and joined with the Portadown District Lodges and to bolster their numbers and to show their support for them, for them. And at times when you stood, as we did, on the on the, on the security uh, forces side of the wire and looked across, it was like, and there was a, 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 I should say, there was a moat made, there was, there was a ditch to begin with, but they brought in articulated shovels and dug it out to fill it with water to make it more difficult to cross and barbed wire was placed along it. It was a battle scene. It was like something from the First World War at times. It really was. And, you know, and especially at night time when, you know, the, the light was going down, there was fireworks being shot over and, uh, you know, there was flags being waved and there was bonfires lit on the other side. If you sort of squinted through your eyes at it, you could have said, the Battle of the Boyne? What, what? And, you know, and that played into, 
in, in, very very much into some people's hands because that's the, the way they wanted it to be seen. The Battle of Drumcree. Yeah, the Battle of Drumcree. That's the way I want to see. And, you know, you mentioned the war, uh, the, the word war earlier. Uh, the BBC at the time, because it was such a mass, it was a worldwide story. It became something which was much local to worldwide very, very quickly. You had everybody there, CNN, all the American networks, networks from all over Asia, all over Europe. And BBC sent Kate Eddy over to, to cover it because obviously it was the story at the time. Above the sound of protest and disruption, there is no sound of negotiation to be heard. Attitudes are hardening and tempers are rising. Kate Eddy, BBC News, Portadown. In my, in my mind, that was a mistake because when she turned up with her track record, and this, from memory, wasn't long after Tiananmen Square and all that, uh, the, the Orangemen spotted her very easily because she was quite a distinct figure when she was down there. And somebody got a large poster made on the orange side, stuck it up and said, well, Kate Eddie's here, it must be war. And, you know, at that point, you're sort of saying to yourself, well, like, you have to be very careful here about where we go with this because to start banding around the word war is going to strike fear into the rest of the community. Now, we have to be clear and make, make, make the point that the vast majority of people outside of those involved in the drum queer dispute weren't. They weren't involved in it. They were trying to get on with their lives. They were trying to go off on their holidays. They couldn't because the airports were closed because they couldn't get to the airport because there was roadblocks in place. They were trying to do, trying to get to work. In some cases, they couldn't because they, there were roadblocks, uh, again, by protesting uh, members of the, of the Orange Order and their supporters. All of that was happening. Their lives were being disrupted and impacted in ways that they never thought w- would have been possible. And that grew to the point where, as I said earlier, it became very, very much a societal issue. Everybody's life was impacted by Drum Cree. Whether you lived close to it, had any connection with it, you couldn't avoid it anywhere. You mentioned uh, the roadblocks and the restricted movement. I remember being trapped in certain parts of Belfast and work and, you you know, you couldn't have got home anyway, even if you wanted to. Uh, I think for younger people listening to it, they might find that unbelievable that the, the Orange Order at that stage was able to, you know, restrict movement on, on a vast scale. But that did obviously lead to a lot of tension because, for example, if you are a Catholic driving home from work and you're stopped literally by your Protestant neighbour and people have said to me that they said to people, I'd be telling your ma about this. Do you know what I mean? Are you serious? And then that leads to minor boycotts and bitterness and like 25 years later, do you know he stopped me at a roadblock? You know, uh, and this sort of societal spreading well beyond it and, and that level of tension. Uh, and then it brought people talking about, I suppose, who really is in charge here? Who 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 governs Northern Ireland? And that, you know, it, 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 that's how wide it got, didn't it? And, uh, and in terms of the coverage, this was worldwide. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was stopped as well. I mean, I, where, where I live, uh, outside of Belfast, I had to, whenever I was back up, at home, I was driving into um, the office, the BBC offices, and I was stopped at a roadblock in the outskirts of, where, of the town I live in, and I knew virtually everybody in that roadblock, and they stopped me, and I says, "What? What's what's this about?" He says, "Well, we're not letting anybody through," and I says, "Well, let me tell you something. I'm going in to work to cover the ongoing protests by the Orange Order over what's happening in the." In, in the wider Northern Ireland uh, theatre, if you like. If you don't let me through, that won't get covered. So what do you want to do about it? So at that point, I think a penny dropped and I was way through. Obviously, many people weren't. And I can understand exactly how you'd feel. I mean, I didn't feel good about being stopped 
maybe people I knew at leaving my own town. So I can imagine how people would, who, who would feel being stopped by people who they knew were from the other community stopping them getting out to go to their place of work over something which they had no part in. And as I say, that's where the impact really ran deep uh, and that's where it became much more than just the issue about getting home from a church parade. So and it wasn't the only, it, there, the, many, uh, I mean, it depends. Some nationalists would say, well, a handful of parades were contentious. I suppose many people in the Orange Order would say, oh, there's, there's, there's almost like all our parades are, are being contentious. So, But there were other flashpoints. There were other parades that were that became contentious. Maybe yes. they always were, depending on your point of view. If you were to take the contentious parades and set them aside the non-contentious parades, they, it's minuscule, it really was minuscule because there are hundreds of parades over that period of time. If you take it from you know, the, the sort of just post Easter up towards the twelfth, and then through until the last Saturday in August, which is the the Black uh, Preceptories parades, there are hundreds of parades. The vast majority of them were not contentious, but the ones which were contentious were really contentious, and the Orange took the view that. Why all of a sudden were there so many contentious parades when they weren't contentious for years before? And you could make the argument, I suppose, from their perspective that, you know, it's the same parade down the same street with the same people living a lot, and all of a sudden we're being told we can't do it anymore. That's what they call the Sinn Féin slice IRA policy to destroy the Orange Order. That's how they saw it, really, at the, at, at the end of the day. Once again, the British government and the IRA are trying to take away our God-given right to complete the march from Dumbrey Church. Step by step, they are trying to walk us into a night down. We cannot let this happen. Although Jerry Adams did try and take the credit in an interview for uh, many of the residents, uh, you know, committees, like naturally some of the people involved in the residents or associations and the various had some... Republican connections, strong, weak. Uh, some were not involved with Sinn Féin. Some were, you know, obviously the SDLP. Bridge Rogers was a huge figure, for example, uh, in, in, in the Garvahi Road. But what's your assessment of that? How much of the residents' associations was purely local and how much was influenced from afar? Well, you, you obviously can't say that all residents' associations were not influenced by by, by politicians, um, be they SDLP or or Sinn Féin. Um, yes, there was in, they, they, those people were were there. They were having their say, the politicians, and obviously those, their say was being listened to. Maybe in some instances they had more uh, say and more control over a residents' group than was probably they should have had because maybe they didn't live in the area directly. They they were they were coming in, as I've said, being, some, in fact, in some occasions, uh, supporters for residence groups were being bussed in uh, to, to bolster the numbers because they weren't uh, enough there to, if you like, make a, a big enough stand. So, but you can, conversely, on the other side of the, of the argument, you can say, were there Protestant paramilitaries involved with the Orange Order protests? Undoubtedly, there were. I mean, we've seen, we saw pictures, for instance, of some of them proudly parading down the hill at Drumcree with certain T-shirts on their, uh, bearing certain slogans, and you knew exactly who they were. Led by a certain man yes. who now lives in Ayrshire. Exactly. Uh, and others as well. And, and you know, we have a podcast about yeah, him if you want exactly. to Exactly. So, you know, all, all of that was happening because they saw here is something we need to get involved in. And that's where, if you like, the hijacking of the issue took place, perhaps on both sides. It just remains uh, an issue between local Portadown Orangemen and local Portadown residents. It probably may have been sorted out 
a lot quicker and a lot easier. But everybody got involved. Don't forget, leading the, the church leaders, the Catholic and Protestant church leaders, were also involved trying to do their bit. Uh, the Secretary of State and all of her team were involved trying to do their bit. All the main unionist leaders, David Trumbull, uh, Ian Paisley, etc., were involved, as was Jerry Adams and, uh, as you say, Breed, Breed Rogers, particularly in, in Portadown, and the SDLP as a party were, were involved, all trying to do their bit. We are not going to put up with seeing our people selfishly attacked as they were. When they all get involved, the situation becomes much more messy. I remember a story about uh, told to me by one orangeman put it down about a certain member of the order who also happened to be a, a politician, and at that stage he was, it seemed to be he was in everything but the crib, as was said at the time. And he kept turning up at these meetings at the um, at the church hall on Drumcree Hill to have his say and to try to influence the to be a bit where things should go and what they should do next. And at one point, I think the orange men from Portadown got a bit fed up with this and says, you can't have him in here. He's not an orange man from this area. He shouldn't be taking part in this conversation. So they basically put him out of the hall. And that was fair enough. But the same person who told me the story says, yeah, but about an hour later, he rejoined the conversation because he jumped in through a bathroom window. So it just shows you how much people wanted to get involved in the discussion. On, on both sides, that they would go to those lengths to be there to try to influence what was taking place because, it, 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 well, there was such there was such media attention. Everything seemed to become a microcosm. Everything was concentrated. It was a zenith of our problems, maybe a zenith of sectarianism, and it was this two two rights, which I think most people could recognise as legitimate, it, it, but it, they couldn't it, happen at the same time. No, it, it exposed, if you like, the, the soft and ugly underbelly of. Uh, of Northern Ireland's uh, community life here and the way things were, and maybe to some extent still are, but certainly in, in Portadown, uh, where, you know, they're unable and, and have been unable to reach uh, an agree agreement on the particular parade. Um, you saw there recently the marking of the 25th year of the anniversary of not getting down the road. Um, so that's still, uh, they're still applying for the parade. They're still marching down every Sunday. They're still being met by a police officer who says you can go no further. And the uh, residents, to my understanding, are still obviously, when an application for the parade is put in, to the parade's commission, the residents are putting in other application and objecting to it. It's my understanding anyway. Um, so, you know, that we are still there. But as I say, when you push that out wider, it, it'll meet a lot of people who wouldn't have come with within um, a mile of any dispute of that nature ever, it made made them the people who live in the in the leafy suburbs, if you like, feel very uncomfortable about life here. That was the thing. That's what rattled everybody. It made everybody feel very uncomfortable at that time. Whereas in many ways the troubles, in some ways, were restricted to certain areas. At least, at least for the most part. Mervyn, nineteen ninety eight was the. I suppose this is where everything came to a head. And then on Sunday, the 12th of July, 1998, uh, a house was bombed, a petrol bombed in Balamoni. Um, it was a mixed household of, of Catholic and Protestant. And there were three young boys, Jason, aged eight, Mark, aged nine, and Richard, aged 10. They were the Quinn brothers, which everyone will now remember who they were. Uh, they were burned to death, horrifically. And that, I, I, I shudder to say it, but in a sense, you know, did, did everyone just sort of come to their senses in that horrific moment? Or 
What happened then? Well, what happened that morning, as I remember it, um, we were actually, there was a whole group of us, uh, BBC staff, were staying in a house. We'd rented a house in uh, Cor- uh, uh, just off the Gawahi Road to be close to, because at that stage, a lot of the area around it was sealed off. You couldn't get in or out. So we had to stay in the area. So we were staying in a, in a house which we'd rented off a family who had moved out of the of the Gawahi Road area to get away from it all. And we took their house over and basically had about 10 of us sleeping on it on the floors upstairs in every bedroom and the news was on the radio that morning exactly of that and it was followed up by uh, an interview with the chief constable at the time uh, Ronnie Flanagan and the presenter said to uh, Ronnie Flanagan and after the news about these young children being killed we're now being joined by the uh, chief constable Ronnie Flanagan good morning chief constable and he said from memory it's not a good morning it's, it's a bad morning for Northern Ireland. Three young children killed in the midst of a dispute, an ongoing dispute at Drum Cree. And he basically linked those deaths right there and then to the dispute at Drum Cree. Now, the Orange men at Drum Cree never really accepted that. Most of them say it wasn't anything to do with Drum Cree. It was something to do with something else altogether. And that it, the, the deaths had been used, if you like, to take the sting out of the protest. That's a that's a point of debate and always will be. What did make a big difference after Ronnie Flanagan's comments were the uh, chaplain at um, Drum Cree, one of the senior uh, Orange members uh, at the time, he actually went to a, a, a service on the Sunday morning uh, and preached the words that no road is worth a life. And that was the Reverend Bingham, William Bingham. And he had, up until that stage, been, if you like, one of the uh, one of the faces of the Orange Dispute down there. And some would have said, you know, the, the more moderate face of, of the Orange Dispute in, in that area. He said, and he was the County Grand Chaplain of Armagh and a member of the Orange Order negotiating team, and he said, walking down the Garvahi Road would be a hollow victory because it would be in the shadow of three coffins of little boys who couldn't even know what the Orange Order was about. I believe the Orange Order needs to call off its protests because we can't control them. Drum Cree is rapidly getting out of our hands. We have to back off from that. Yes, we can have a peaceful camp there, but more bloodshed in our land. I ask you, do you think it will be worth it? It's. Um, I remember. You know, we remember. You remember that time. It was. It was a, a, iconic, and it was. It was incredibly brave of him. It was, and and, and also, uh, it was his view, and it was the view of many. Uh, I would say the, the view of the majority of people that 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 incident happened because of what was going on at Drum Cree, and that did that did draw the sting out of that dispute without a doubt, because the numbers that were there previously, which were in the thousands just began to dwindle away. And and eventually uh, that year's violence subsided and everybody left and the standoff continued to another year. But it really did pull people up short. I even know that the senior members of the Orange Order, whether they believed or did not believe that was linked to it, as far as the rest of the community was concerned, the deaths were linked to the dispute. And that's what mattered. That's why people perceived it. And they took the view at that stage, many of them, that, you know, 
we can't have this going on. I mean, what if that happens again? And the, the order was being shown, shown in such a bad light. Really, compared to the residence group who were, you know, especially in, in, in foreign media, uh, they, they were the oppressed and the orange were the oppressors and then three young children die as a result of, of their dispute. That, that was cataclysmic in any respects from their PR point of view. And there was talk at that stage of people leaving the orange order in large numbers because of it because they didn't want to be associated with something that had maybe led directly to the deaths of three young children. So, yes, you're right. That was another seismic moment during the dispute and a moment which that year, if you like, effectively ended the, uh, the, the ongoing trouble, which had been pretty severe up to that point. Even in places like in the Armour Road, I know the nationalist protesters decided you know, to allow the Orange Order to march down the Ormer Road with black, you know, the nationalist protesters had black flags. And I remember at the time, you know, there was an awful lot of reflection, I think, not just on the orange side, you know, about, about the entire thing. We, we mentioned then the Battle of Drum Cree. Some people were calling it the Battle of Drum Cree. And if you lose Drum Cree, you lose everything. Yeah, well, well it's lost. The, the Battle of Drum Cree wasn't an exaggeration in many respects because it was a battle. Uh, without, shall, shall we say, the, the, the heavy artillery, but everything else was there. I mean, shots were fired by uh, protesters on the other side. We don't know who fired them, but we have, there was footage of, it, of shots being fired from within the crowd towards the police and army lines. The fields around Drum Creek became basically police and military encampments. I can remember one field in particular. It was, its, its crop was just coming up, getting ready for the, the, the late summer harvest, and it became a landing pad for the army Chinooks, which were bringing in the reinforcements. And I stood one one uh, early evening and watched two Chinooks land in that field, just a matter of yards from where we were standing in our camera position. The crops were being blown out of the ground. The dust was swirling up through the ro- rotating blades. And out of the back were piling police officers and army in full riot kit with their shields, battens and, um, uh, and helmets. It was like a scene from a Vietnam film. It was hard to believe this was happening uh, at this particular time and in this particular part of the world. Made for great TV pictures. You can imagine that going around the world. Of course it did. And then the barbed wire all along that ditch at the front of the church, the huge metal barrier placed on the road, you know, maybe I don't know, 40, 50 feet high. And soldiers and police right along, stationed right along the, the barbed wire, the College of Barbed Wire, floodlights erected by the security forces shining down onto it. It was spectacular TV. And, you know, you, you couldn't have written that uh, five years earlier, but that's what it became. And that's what scared the life out of a lot of people. And also, it put uh, the police in particular, it, they were really stretched, I mean, almost to breaking point. Because they were trying to hold down the situ- situation in Drum Cree, and other stuff was fires were breaking out all over the country in other areas, either in protest at it or in support of it, and they were trying to deal with that as well. So a lot was going on, and police officers were being uh, asked to work uh, never-ending shifts nearly, and were being drained of their energy levels. And then, of course, when the people get tired, things happen, and you had incidents where uh, cops lost it effectively in the middle of a a dispute and lashed out when they probably shouldn't have had and that didn't help either because then those pictures were put out and you saw what was police at that stage brutalising innocent sit-down protesters 
but they were under great stress and strain too. You know, the, 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 the members of the, of the RIC at the time, they, it was, it was um, horrendous, to, uh, horrendous working conditions and a horrendous time for everybody because everybody's emotions, everybody's emotions were stretched to the limit. Well, what we've seen in the last two nights in Drum Cree is thuggery, nothing more and nothing less. It's not what the vast majority of people in Northern Ireland want. Indeed, it's not what the vast majority of members of the Orange Order want. And they, like me, will support the police in whatever action they need to take to deal with these thugs. And it has been revealed since, there's been reports since the senior RUC officers said at the time, you know, if these protesters decide to come through, then, you know, you know we're not going to be able to hold them back. The you only know, way they could have stopped the protesters coming through, or indeed the, the Orange coming through, was to shoot them. We were told that at the time. The only way they could effectively, uh, the, 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 whenever they had 30,000 people in the, in the field at Drum Cree Hill, if they had wanted to come through, they could have. And the only way they could have stopped them was to have shot them. And that was never going to happen. So something had to be sorted out. Well, before we move on, because the, 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 Mo Molum in 1998 set up the Parades Commission uh, to take on... Um, contested parade routes. And I'd like to get back to that because that's still a, an issue for many loyalists in the Orange Order today. But the RUC, do you think that, of course, it was a basic demand of Sinn Féin at the time to disband the RUC uh, and certainly the, 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 the SDLP wanted serious reform. But do you think that that, was, that that period was a significant time on the road to the PSNI? I know many in the nationalist community will be angered by this decision. It has been dictated by circumstances. I would have preferred it otherwise. Nevertheless, I appeal to all in the nationalist community to understand that overall public safety across Northern Ireland has to be the Chief Constable's concern. Your voice is not ignored. I understand your feelings and I will address them in legislating on this issue. I'm only sorry that option was not open to us this summer. It, it was certainly... Before before the uh, RUC became the PSNI, it was it was it was probably their their no doubt their largest biggest challenge before they and the workings for that change were probably already underway in some respects to, to try to ease the transition between one force to to the next and also obviously to to apply uh, and to ask to, to to apply what they would call fair play and to recruit from the nationalist or Catholic population. Which officer or which, which prospective officer in the, in the Catholic nationalist community would consider joining the police having watched what was happening at Drum Cree? Very few, if any. So they, they had a real issue there with that as regards the future. But then again, at that stage, it seemed and it probably was the case that the future hung in the balance because it, it could have gone either way at some stage and at, 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 at any stage during the height of those troubles. Could have. We were right up to the brink, is my view, right up to the brink. It would only have taken one thing to push us over. But as always, it seems, with uh, politics and protests in Northern Ireland, when we get right up to the brink, people have I don't know some sort of inbuilt instinct, and they pull back. In some instances, without encouragement from others, just they know themselves. This is as far as we need. We're prepared to go here, and they pull back. And that has always been the necessary safety valve, in my view, over the years. When it gets to that situation, there is a pullback. Otherwise, you go into like a Balkans scenario where 
mayhem ensues. The rule of law no longer applies, and it's every man and woman for themselves. We never get to that situation, uh, thank goodness, um, because, I don't know, humanity must kick in at some point, uh, even amongst the most vociferous protester. I suppose for many people, the Parades Commission has been the solution to these problems. For other people, it is the cause of these the, the, these problems. D- you know, what do you think? I mean, we could, probably couldn't have had a Parades Commission before this period, but... D- has the Parades Commission effectively sided with the residents, as some claim, or or, or do you think it's a, a good solution? Well, the Parades Commission would never agree that they've sided with anybody. They're there to make a decision. And again, they're just exactly in a situation they found the police found themselves in before the uh, Parades Commission was put in place. If you go down the Ormore Road today, and it was there a couple of weeks ago when I drove past, there's a mural on the wall, which is 25 years old, probably. Well, it's 20 years old anyway. And this is the very first Praise Commission chairman, Alistair Graham, a long, tall, uh, grey-haired, silver-haired Englishman who uh, took on the onerous task of heading up the very first Praise Commission. And that, that faded mural exists to this day around uh, the Praise. It's worth looking at it because in its own way it tells its story of that particular time. But the, the Commission obviously has changed over the years because... Members come and go, and they're not there forever. It it removes the need for the police to get directly involved in the decision making process. That's the that's the good thing about the Praise Commission. It allows the decision to be taken by a group of individuals. From so there's meant to be a cross community group representing all p- points of view, sitting down and deciding what's good about this, what's bad about this, and then making a decision whether to impose restrictions on. And to be clear, the Praise Commission. I know this is a, a phrase which is put around a lot in, uh, in when we're talking about this. The Praise Commission does not ban parades because it doesn't have any statutory authority to do so. The Praise Commission can place restrictions on parades, but it can't ban them. The only person who can ban, ban a parade is the Secretary of State. But it does the job it's asked to do the best it can do, is all I could say. Again, not an easy one. Maybe a little bit easier now, obviously, than what it was at the height of the, the parades controversies. But if you, in, in many respects, because it's there, it's at least it's there for somebody to point the finger at and to blame, as opposed to pointing the finger at the police and trying to blame them, which is a much more political thing, if you understand it. It gets the police out of the firing line uh, and it, it gives people something else to focus on. And they can, they can appeal decisions that the Praise Commission make, and then that appeal is listened and heard to, and then a, another or the same determination is, is issued. But at least there's a process. It's not just a police commander on the ground making a decision there and then because of the changing situation he or she is facing. It's a process which has been in place now for many years, and people understand how it works. So it gives them, uh, protesters and the marchers, somewhere to go and uh, resolve or not resolve, but at least air their differences in a way that does not involve petrol bombs, stone throwing or ratting. Well, of course, uh, for the, from the, well, of course, uh, for the, from the Orange Order's point of view, as we've heard in recent weeks, is, is unfinished business. For many people, I suppose, looking from the outside in, 
they don't see it from that point of view. Now, you are uh, a noted historian on the Orange Order. You've written a book on the Orange Order. You've reported on the Orange Order for many years. I'm just wondering about the resonance of Drumcree today for the Orange Order. Did Drumcree ultimately weaken the Orange Order or strengthen the Orange Order? It's an interesting question because you could uh, argue for both. It certainly weakened it at the time. That is no doubt about that. Changes that, changes that were made within certain parts of the Orange Order has, have probably strengthened it. For instance, the County Armagh Lodge, uh, which would have been at the forefront along with the Portadown District during Drumcree, uh, has in recent years seen a resurgence in membership. It is probably one of the most well-off, wealthiest counties, stroke districts in, or, in, in the Orange Order because of the uh, the fees that their members pay. They're, they're some of the highest fees, I feel like, membership dues uh, than, than anywhere else in the order. They've got a lot of uh, collateral behind them. And they're able, uh, as was seen there uh, this 12th of July, to hold their county demonstration in, in Lurgan, the Brownlow House, and invite the Secretary of State as a special guest, a VIP guest, who attended his first ever 12th. So... In, and also that parade passed off without any incident at all. It did not go near any area of Lurgan that would earlier have been contentious. And they're able to uh, go about their 12th of July uh, ceremonials without anybody uh, causing offence to anybody else. So there's progress uh, in the area where uh, this the dispute of Drumcree uh, was the, uh, if you like, the, the eye of the storm for many years. Elsewhere in Orangeism, you probably can't make the same judgment, but it's worth mentioning Londonderry. They, before many areas in Orangeism, had, had agreed and had reached agreement with nationalism about their parades up there, not just the Orange Parades, but also the Apprentice Boys of Derry. In fact, the, the Apprentice Boys of Derry have, a, my understanding, a very good working relationship with uh, the nationalist community in, in that city. So, yes, there have been moves made uh, because of the parades, the contentious parades issue that has maybe forced the hand of, of some orange men, leaders, whatever, to, to make inroads with the other community, which are vital to protecting and ensuring that their culture, as they see it, is recognised and respected and that they can go on uh, to celebrate it for, for years to come. In some other areas, it's been a bit more problematical. You could make the argument that around the Belfast uh, area, you know, North Belfast in particular, um, up around Ardoin, we saw there, not too distant past, a lot of trouble around those, that, that particular uh, area when praise were coming down through. So, uh, but elsewhere in the city, other areas which were contentious have been, have been sorted out. So yes, small steps in some areas, larger strides, shall we say, in, in others. Um, the Orange Order, you have to remember, is a is a bottom-up organisation. While its leaders sit at the top and the Grand Lodge officers and all the rest of it, they're mightily influenced by what people at the grassroots level feel. And nothing changes unless they change. Because at the end of the day, when the votes are taken, the district, uh, the district officers inform the county officers and the county officers inform the Grand Lodge. So it's a bottom-up process. If you don't get it together and everybody in the same hymn sheet, if you like, at ground level, it's not going to work. So it's a slow process. 
But in some areas, you can see where progress in the eyes of the outside community is being made. And it's worth saying that, you know, we've just had the 12th of July. And to, to my knowledge, no major incidents anywhere that I'm aware of at this stage. So not that many years ago, you wouldn't have been able to say that. Drum Cree, uh, it is what it is down there, but it's peaceful. It's dignified, which is what they've always said from the very outset, the local Lawrence men have put it down. All they want is peaceful, dignified protest and their rights to, mark, to, to, to march along the road or parade along the road, as they put it, because they always make the point, armies march, Orange men parade, to parade along the road that they've always parade along, or at least to complete their church parade, which is another way of looking at it. In, in reality, it's not resolved. Okay, there's no parade down the road, but they're still making an application to do so. In my view, it'll only be a resolved issue when either the Orange uh, members say, we no longer want or wish or require to parade down the Gavahi Road. The residents reach an agreement with them to say, okay, we'll allow, we're not going to object to this one parade to get you down the road to complete that original parade 25 years ago. And after that, we'll discuss future parades. Or, or the residents will just say, well, like, you know what, we don't, we don't care anymore. There's a whole, there, there's about, there's about the, maybe the three main ways you could look at that there. What you'll never see again, in my view, would be a large police security operation on the Gravahi Road or indeed at the church to either prevent the parade going down or to push the parade down the Gravahi Road. Those days are, are over. Reverend Jess, thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by George Sloan. The clips you heard were from Sky, the BBC, ITV, RTE and AP. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a €75 O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.